Coming up on the Media Project, Alan Shartok, Ira Fussfeld, Barbara Lombardo, and me, Rex Smith, with a conversation about what's going on in the media this week. On the show you're about to hear, the relationship between public sentiment for the Ukrainian people and the way it's being covered in the media. We'll talk about news coverage and how difficult it is in times of war and what the impact is on you, the listeners. Join us for Media Project for those topics and more coming up next. They wallow in corruption. Papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project is a conversation among some veteran journalists where we look back at media issues of recent days, and we are thankful to you for joining us. I am Rex Smith, and I'm here with, of course, Dr. Alan Shartok, Ira Fussfeld, and with Barbara Lombardo. We are the media projectors of this week. I always thought we were the projectiles. Oh, it could go either way. Yeah, it could Mm. be. So let's start with an email from one of our listeners, Mark, writes to us. We don't often do this, but, you know, folks, you can send your messages, media at WAMC.org. And I want to know, Dr. Shartok, if you would give us your first reaction to this. Dear Media Project Panel, that's also what we could be called. Dignified. Yes, that's, 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 very that's nice. the formal. If you look it up in the dictionary, that's what that's you say. It. Don't you agree that there's a relationship between public sentiment for the Ukrainian people and the way this war is being covered in the media? Imagine if media coverage of the wars in Sudan or in Rwanda were just as intense. Wouldn't public sentiment have been different? Imagine if media coverage was even different for the Haitians or the Mexicans fleeing for their lives from the drug cartels. Perhaps public reaction would have been better if the plight of these people were covered in the same way that we are reporting the personal stories of the people in Ukraine. Well, that's a very good letter, I think. The question to me is, which comes first, the papers or the citizens who have to make those decisions? Now, I certainly think that it is true that the Ukrainians are a lot like us. You see them on the television and you say, they're like me, and therefore, unlike some other wars and some other places where people's skin color may be different or where their religions may be different, 
this is my group, and therefore I am very interested in them. Now the newspapers come along, or the, the news media, certainly all of CNN, everybody else, has somebody in Ukraine right now, and they turn around and they say, okay, let's do it, because we know that this is going to be a popular subject with our audience. So basically, I believe the letter's right. Ira? Yeah, I don't think there's any question about it. I think the fact that the people involved in this war and the, the innocent civilians in this war look like us, and I think that there is a tendency on the part of the media writ large to devote resources and personnel to an area in the world that their viewers and readers can relate to. And I, I don't even know how to put it without getting into the same problem that that Charlie Daggett of CBS got involved with, where he, he made it sound like... Those people over there in the Middle East are different than the people here. But essentially, that's been the issue, I think, that their coverage in the Middle East is harder for people here to get their arms around and harder for the media to get its arms around. Well, and to be clear, when you say looks like us, we are sitting here white upper class, upper yeah. middle class Americans. And so looks like us means looks like we white folks sitting here, which is, I think, an inescapable reality of the way America tends to digest news. Isn't that right, Barbara? Yes, I would agree with what's been said so far. And there are differences, though, where the threat of nuclear war is bigger. The people can relate more to Ukraine, not just because of the similarity to the people, but its size, its location in Europe, their familiarity with things like Chernobyl and Kiev. So I think that's part of it also. The fighting with NATO. So there are different factors that doesn't make those other things less horrible and probably was deserving of more coverage than it got. But this is understandable, I think. You know, I, I take a look at uh, Putin himself. People keep making the parallelism with Hitler. They say Putin is Hitler. But in the beginning, I don't think a lot of people absorb that. But I think more and more people are seeing that Putin is willing to bomb hospitals with children in them and do things that is more worthy of Hitler, although Putin is not right now doing what Hitler did with the Jews. He is not identifying a huge class of people, millions of people, and putting them in gas chambers. And yet, I watched the coverage by the media of Putin, and it has remarkably and dramatically changed. Oh, yes. Isn't that interesting? You know, we've had these 30 years, really, of Russia being open to the West, where we have, you know, exchange students have been here, and we've had sister city, uh, Albany, Tula, our sister cities. That kind of openness has suddenly clamped shut, and you're seeing now a reflection in the media of the general change in the public attitude which is kind of taking us back to the, those Cold War days that, well, all of us around this table remember as children, that it was a time when we viewed them as dangerous. And don't we have a danger, though, here of not being able to see things from the standpoint of the Russian people? And this is a difficulty because the Russian people are getting spoon-fed a very different view, we believe, than what we are able to see. They're being told that this is, uh, you know, a war of liberation and that the West is responsible for this. And so we risk in our coverage sort of identifying all Russians as being of the stereotype of Putin. Yes, and so much depends, I think, on our accurate reporting of the press in Russia because we have a dictator here, and more and more he is a dictator, obviously. 
raising the idea that I'm going to repress the press in my own country. I'm not, you're not going to be able to read anything. You're not going to be able to hear anything. And if anybody does it, they'll get charged a lot of rubles and or they'll go to jail. I mean, uh, it's not even a threat. They have passed laws now that are making what they consider negative coverage as they would define it. Those that's right, power. which affects Ill- how we're able to get it. Right. right. So uh, the people in Russia don't know what's going on. The people around the world don't know what's going on. And understandably, for the safety of their staff, major news outlets, you know, they're pulling yes. back, suspending coverage. The this New York is- Times has pulled its correspondence out of Russia. CNN still has its bureau there, but they have ceased reporting from Russia. But that's an interesting point you make there, Rex, about mm-hmm. the Times. As I saw the initial reports that the Times was not going to do business over there, because basically that means that the Russian oligarchs and the president, the so-called president, Putin, win. If the Times pulls out of there, we're not going to be able to get the kind of excellent reporting that we have had before. But on the other hand, would you stay if they told you if you did something they didn't like, they're going to put you in jail? Not only put you in jail, but your life is at risk. Well, NBC, last night as we speak, so it would have been Wednesday night, they did have a report from Moscow with their veteran Moscow correspondent, Keir Simmons. He did interview some people on the street, but the anchor, Lester Holt, prior to introducing the piece, described what has gone on in Moscow and that he, he wanted that to be the backdrop to the interview. So there was nothing particularly controversial about the interview, but the fact is he was able to conduct the interview. But as you point out, CNN has not closed its bureau. I don't think the Times has either. They're just not reporting directly. See, well, I- they don't have anybody there. They the, pulled the they people pulled them, out of they Russia. Pulled out mm-hmm. to, they yeah. pulled the Americans out. Yes. Let me ask you, let me be provocative. You? I guess, yes, that's what they call me, provocative yeah. projectile. <laughs> There's obviously no more important story in the world than what's going on now, particularly because we're on the brink of World War III. What else is going on in the world that's not being covered? Mm -hmm. And is it too much coverage on the cable news networks? It's wall to wall. Is there not time for other news stories? New York Times, which has done a tremendous job covering the war, is still covering other stories, albeit a story that might have been on page one is now on page 12. But if you were the the assignment editor at CNN, would you say all day, 24-7, the war? No. I think you've put your finger on something that is really problematic about the way we deliver and consume television news in this country because we still treat it as though, let me tune in for a half hour and get everything that's important, and then I'm done. And so recognizing if you're the executive producer of a show and you recognize that that's how people still tend to consume the news, you need to give people a more broad diet. You need Why do you say need? What do you mean you need to? It's your uh, obligation you, as a journalist to, wait, to give well, people the information that's important. Well, mm-hmm. let me argue argue with you there. You say you need to, based on your standards as a very good and wonderful news deliverer yourself in a history I of love that. it when he talks this way. Well, but, <laughs> yeah, and that's why I do it. But, but, you know, when you say you need to, the only need that the people who are producing this stuff seem to follow is the need to have eyeballs either on the television screen or on the newspaper, as opposed to doing what's, quote, right. Well, As my old boss used to say, no margin, no mission. If you don't have an audience or if you don't have enough of an audience to deliver you the resources you need to cover something, you're lost. So you have to have eyeballs, yes. But within that, you're always juxtaposing the need to draw an audience with the need 
again, still using that word, to deliver everything that people need to have. But, Rexy, you said, my old boss Mm -hmm. said, the boss always has a different mission, perhaps, than the reporters (laughs) or the rank-and-file people do. Because the boss understands dollars and cents and, you know, and mm-hmm. the need to keep the thing going. Ira, you were a boss for a long time. Tell oh, my uh, old employees So that. I'm going to ask you a question. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question. When you were a boss, were you following the dictates of dollars and cents or what was right? I mean, what, how did you make your decisions? You can't ignore the dollars and cents of it when you're a publisher, but the theory was for many, for almost the entirety of the history of the newspaper business, if you were a legitimate newspaper outlet, you would be covering journalism, you'd be doing journalism the right way, which was not worrying in the newsroom whether or not anything is important other than how big a story it is and how are we going to cover it. Now, that began to change even before the Internet when the newspaper business started to slow down and you saw the introduction of circulation people and advertising people in certain news meetings so that they could give their input to the newsroom about what was selling newspapers and thus and what was selling newspapers and thus selling advertising. So the short answer is the publisher certainly was always aware of it, but the pressure on the dollars and cents of it, I presume, is still today and certainly was when I was there increasing because of what was going on in the industry. You have the great advantage in the newspaper world we had uh, back when everybody used to pay attention to newspapers. You had the great advantage of having a big, fat paper with a lot of pages. This is You made reference to that, Alan, by saying, you know, it's deeper into the paper of this stuff. So the papers still are covering these other stories and delivering them to people. The problem is that television news, it still only focuses on a story at a time. And still, if you look at the cable channels, is filled with commentary, filled with talking heads, instead of actually giving people access to a broad range of information about the full range of issues that are going on in folks' lives. See, I've said this before, and if you take a cable, let's use CNN as an example. Let's agree for the sake of the discussion that they're a neutral, as neutral as there can be, cable news outlet. They have all manner of shows from 6 o'clock in the morning all the way around the dial. And at the top of each show, your mission is to report the news. So if each half hour or hour then a new host comes in, you're reporting the same stuff over and over again, you're really fulfilling your obligation. The problem is people who are watching that entirely throughout the day and night, as many people do, you become numb to it at a certain point in time and you become brainwashed by it and then you can switch over to to the opinion people that you were talking about. A lot of the viewers are not able to differentiate between what is news and what is opinion. So I think that they have a difficult issue to deal with, but my belief is that they still should be covering news other than the war, as important as the war is, and I'm not sure we're getting a lot of that. Isn't that why, though, the new media like newsletters. Some of the best reporting that's going on these days on all kinds of topics is being done by organizations that have come into existence in the last 10 years that are producing issue-targeted newsletters, and you have specialized reporting that people are able to access. And of course, the internet facilitates this because you can, if you're interested in climate change, you call that up. If you're interested in economic issues, you can get that. So that's great. In fact, if I were you, Barbara, being a professor of journalism now, 
I would be trying to teach young journalists how to specialize. I'd tell every one of them, you have to have a specialty. You have to have a, a minor in some field if you're a major in journalism or you have a minor in journalism and a major in some field because I think specialization is going to be the key to delivering really good content going forward. That's an interesting take on it and not a bad suggestion. What I'm trying to see at the school is making sure that we're bringing in journalists who can do the basics of no matter what their specialty is, reporting, no matter what the topic is, and how to learn enough to report reliably and believably on mm -hmm. whatever the issue might be that they have to cover. So jack of all trades, master of none type of things as reporters are. And to ask for the specialty, so that's without really knowing what the market is. What it's going to although, be. But it's a good point because if someone has an interest and an inclination for a topic that is of interest to people, then they might make themselves more marketable. Yes, well, I noticed oh, that NPR is doing that more and more. People who used to be general assignment reporters are called on as specialists in a particular area. And those are decisions that are made at the moment that they really need a specialist. So they say, so-and-so who used to be up on the Canadian border, <laughs> yeah, I remember him pretty well, yeah. all of a sudden is you know a specialist in... Brian Mann, the NPR right. addiction reporter that, who used right. to be in the Adirondacks. Uh -huh. That's right. And so you say, what is it? Is it a doctorate? in addiction regs that... <laughs> Well, I had an editor, so, and this yeah. was a long time ago, so I guess he was ahead of his time, but he refused to hire anybody with a journalism degree. He didn't want reporters who had been to journalism school. He wanted reporters, whether it was business or, or whatever the specialty was, and that who could put together a complete sentence. And then his belief was, we can teach him how to write a story, but we can't teach him the expertise that they might need for a specific story. I've hired dozens of people over the years, and I wouldn't rule out journalism students, but I I certainly was interested in people, in applicants who were not journalism students for the reasons that you're yeah. articulating. Yep. I'm with you. Me too. Yep. But on the radio, it also helps that they can sound good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that helps. That's right. And you have to have a certain level of skills in any medium. Delivery is important in the radio because you don't want people switching off. That that used to be the argument that TV anchors would offer when you would talk about, well, why do you have to have your hair done? Because it distracts, they would say, from the message if people are looking at your hair saying, what's wrong with her? Why does she look so red? Or vice versa. <laughs> or what, about, yes. what about the Fox News people who, who wear short skirts oh, uh, that distracts as well. Yeah, right. And purposely uh, so. And purposely so, yeah. yeah that's, and uh, the glass tabletops, which I have mentioned before. Absolutely. I mean, Fox, we don't talk about that as a news. Well, uh, but and I, it I ain't must, only Fox, by the way. Right? I was just going to say that a lot of <laughs> yeah. them do it. Yeah. You, look, you know, I, I'm into TikTok a little bit. I don't really know a lot about TikTok, and I'm surprised to read that people are getting their news from TikTok because my TikTok feed is primarily food, travel, and news anchors with short skirts. And to the point, oh. short skirts, news anchors from everywhere in the country. Are these your just, choices? Is that how they, they know, know what how, you like? I don't know if they found an algorithm that is <laughs> maybe I'm revealing more about myself than yeah, I Yeah, they but, may be looking up Fussville and they the, say, uh oh. <laughs> but my point is that the dress code among women news anchors frequently is the same as is Fox News. Mm -hmm. That's only changed in recent years for mainstream media, and it's still slowly changing for broadcasters, don't you think, of how women should look? And when you watch sports shows on TV when they're talking, it's only recently, I think, that I'm seeing more of the women wearing pants instead of oh. skirts, hmm. that they're not sitting behind desks with their legs 
crossed in their high heels well, that they're, watch Channel 4 that News they're uh, standing. Yeah. They're standing talking to each yeah. other. Yeah, Channel 4 in New York is contrary to that. Yet their lead anchor is Chuck Scarborough, who's 100 years old. So you never, <laughs> you never I remember that. when he was a young man. You, yes. He, he actually looks pretty damn good for his age. But you'll never see a woman anchor last that long as, right. as does he. Where did Sue Simmons go? Well, <laughs> she had other issues. She, <laughs> she, she, is, uh... she forgot when she was on the air and said some inappropriate stuff. Oh, yeah. really? See, this is good to have old folks on this show. You know, it's when you history. mentioned about the choices for news and the importance of keeping a subscriber base, I'll say an online subscriber base, the people in Ukraine, just coming back to that for a moment, the media in re- Ukraine are facing a tremendous challenge, one, to report the news, and then to have a subscriber base that's fleeing is yeah. making it very kind of hard to, very yeah. So that's, I mean, actually one of the great things about digital delivery of the news is that it is portable. You are carrying the news with you in your pocket with your smartphone, hopefully. And I would venture to say that probably in Ukraine, print has all but evaporated because there is no place to deliver it. But people in Ukraine especially need good, solid information. And I would presume that the journalists there are especially working on the term that we would use here is news you can use. That is how you can get out of town, how you can find water, where you can hook into electricity, that kind of thing is very important. I I would point out, by the way, that just as I was leaving the editorship of the Times Union a couple of years ago, we had set up a partnership with Ukraine. I was, in fact, supposed to travel to Ukraine as part of our exchange program. And then we would have Ukrainian journalists come to the Times Union newsroom. And this was part of the notion of sharing best practices for growing the digital audience. That partnership has continued. My successor as editor of the Times Union, Casey Seiler, has written about that. And they have had ongoing relationships with this Ukrainian newsroom that has been very useful in terms of understanding what journalists are going through there in Ukraine and their difficulty of just keeping going. And you have to really hand it to these people for being heroic. You know, it's like the journalists in New Orleans in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina who kept putting out their newspapers and their uh, radio and television programs even as their own homes were being washed away. And when you mentioned about newsletters, in Saratoga there's three people who have started a podcast and they talk about news and without you know getting into the pros and cons of their show, one of them is doing something that I think should be covered by NPR, by WAMC or the Times Union or the Saratogian. So one of the people is married to somebody from Poland and has taped their part of the broadcast from Poland. So they have some property in Poland. They have a car in Poland. They're helping refugees. And they were asking people here to put $20 in an envelope to give to refugees because they're coming across the border with meaningless Ukrainian money. Hmm. So they get to Poland. They can't buy gas. They can't buy food. So it's a small thing, but it's significant about what somebody locally is doing. So actually, that's a good role for the media is to vet opportunities to make a difference, right? right? Yeah. In fact, we know that there are scam artists out there right now who are collecting on behalf of Ukrainians and others. And you have to be very, very careful about where you're putting your resources because of that. And the news media really does have a responsibility, as you suggest, Rex, for telling people where their money could be well spent. 
Yeah, and I feel as though that would be a useful thing to put into the newspaper every day for us to air perhaps here. Actually, there is a website called 518ukraine.com, which is a part of the uh, organization of Ukrainian churches in this area, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And 518ukraine.com actually does provide opportunities, but there are many others, you know, that are worth noting, and that is an appropriate role for the news media in times of crisis like this. Well, I would argue that if, and not to put the Times Union on the spot, but if the Times Union does not print a list of legitimate organizations such as this one, it will still largely go unnoticed in the community because there's so much stuff out there. I don't know, um, this is the old man in me. I don't know how people find these things online. You post a podcast tomorrow and you say something that's particularly interesting or provocative. How do you get your neighbors to know that it's, your neighbors will know because you'll tell them? But had the guy across town, the guy who buys the Times Union in Schenectady, he wouldn't know unless it's as decreasing as newspaper circulation is. It is still largely a go-to place to well, get that kind of We still have to stop thinking about go buy the newspaper yeah. and have it online. I think that's the first step. And then understanding that things happen organically through social media. Social One media. person tells another person, mm -hmm. they pass it along. Social media and marketing. it takes a life of its own. Right, but don't you think that, that it takes a life of its own is, with can be your good. appropriate stimulus? That is why it's so important for good journalism to be done with appropriate social media marketing. You have to know the keywords to put in. You have to know how to make use of the algorithms that the social media right. sites all use because that's how you are able to reach your audience. That's the kind of digital work that now is substituting for what used to be smart root strategies for newspaper delivery. Yeah, so while I know enough to say those words, yeah. I'm more like Ira and not really knowing well, how to, how to get there. I, I, I don't disagree with anything you just said, but I'm wondering if there is still a large, maybe even a majority of the community that either doesn't know how to do this, doesn't have the time to do this, but in short does not get this information. And, you know, we talk about a news desert. I wonder whether there's a little news desert being created by people who don't get the information that it is in fact out you, there. You know, you know, every morning here during the week, we have a program called The Roundtable. And you can get it at WAMC.org if anybody's interested. But in any case, every day we take mail. I must say I was sort of responsible for making the argument that we ought to have mail. And people are saying things that you might not have known. So the idea that, you know, there is an opportunity for people to basically make news themselves by writing to you and telling you something you might not have known becomes very important. Mm -hmm. Yes. Absolutely. But the marketing, the social media marketing is the responsibility of the journalism organizations to get it out there because that is the way that you're going to be able to reach people who are just looking for information on their smartphones. You know, one other issue, by the way, we've been talking about the war entirely, but I just think it's worth noting that you talk about the other stories that perhaps don't get through. The other story that's getting through is inflation. We've just had the announcement that inflation for the year just rose at a, to a 40-year high, 7.9% year over year. So that's big news. The difficulty for media is putting that in context, helping people to understand why that happens so that it's not only politically championed, so that it is understood that there is a, a component in which this relates to the war as well, right? We have to always put these stories into context, and context is hard when people only look at headlines or when it's distorted by 
political considerations. Because, Rex, context may be in the mind of the beholder. Context change based on whether you're a Trumper, for example, or whether you're, you know, a sort of liberal person open to all kinds of news stories. So one of the things that the consumer has to think about and that the people who are putting all of this together have to think about is what is the context that all of this is going on? Well, uh, we're in a time in this country, I'm not going to give you a scoop here, where people are divided and they're getting all sorts of different information. I mean, you've got, uh, Mm. as it relates to the rise in gas prices, you have Biden saying, no, it's Putin's fault. And you have Kevin McCarthy, the congressional minority leader, saying, no, it's Biden's fault. So you're starting out with a split argument and people are not necessarily willing to accept that context that you were suggesting. And to go even further on what you just said, you have an ex-president of the United States, Donald Trump, saying that Putin, of all people, is a genius and and basically approving what he's saying. (laughs) All right. On that terrifying note, we're going to have to call it a day. Oh, no. uh, Yeah, it is so. That is Alan Shartok, Ira Fussfeld, Barbara Lombardo, and I'm Rex Smith. And we are grateful to our producer, David Gustina, for making it possible for us to be here today and to talk to you all. And grateful to you folks for joining us this week once again on The Media Project. They've got a people's fight to wage. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, newspaper guild. Got a free new world to build. Meet the people, that's a thrill. All together fits the bill. Oh, newspaper men are such interesting. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Barbara Lombardo is a journalism professor at the University at Albany and former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. And Ira Fussfeld is the publisher emeritus of the Daily Freeman. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>